When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to new, another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh. And today we are glad to have Patrick, uh, Patrick Hastings with us. He's the creator of this famous website, Ulysses Guide. And he's the English uh, department chair at Gilman School in Baltimore, Maryland. Today he's here to talk to us about his uh, recently published book, The Guide to James Joyce Ulysses, published by John Hopkins University. Patrick, welcome to New Books Network. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. We want to ask you everything we always wanted to know about James Joyce, but we were afraid to ask. <laughs> and, uh, I'll do my best. Yeah, James Joyce, he's this infamously difficult writer to approach, but you've been brave enough uh, to, to read him many, many times. I guess you'll tell us how many times you have read Ulysses, and also you've created this great website, Ulysses Guide. So tell us a little about yourself. What attracted you to James Joyce novels, and what, what made you design that website and then write this book. Yeah. So I, I, you know, in uh, thinking about uh, this project, uh, there's, there's something kind of preposterous about trying to write a guide to James Joyce's Ulysses because there's so much in it and there's so many different angles that you can take. And so, uh, so much to know and so much to not know about this novel. So it's, uh, there's something absurd about this project in and of itself, but I've had a lot of fun working on it. Um, and the, the actual project of the website that then became the book emerged first and foremost from a desire to provide a resource to my own students, um, at Gilman school, um, to help them. I teach a senior elective. Um, so for, 18 year old students, um, a, a course for them to, to read Ulysses, um, and I wanted to kind of pitch the website to be a resource that they could access at home while they're doing the reading to help clear up some of those questions that readers encounter of, you know, what's actually happening here and ground them in the text. And uh, so, so that when they came to class, I was no longer having to kind of give that sort of orientation in the story of the novel or the plot where it allowed us to kind of jump forward and be able to talk more about the style of the text or um, look more closely at specific passages and how a character is thinking about something or what illusions are being made and kind of really break down those without having to look at it more globally. So it was kind of like a uh, the initial idea was to, to jumpstart each class uh, meeting that I would have with my students by providing them with this to uh, the website to access from home, um, and it I, I guess it it seems like that audience of my Gilman students uh, who are very bright uh, and very hardworking and and really engaged and interested that the kind of pace or rhythm or level of depth and detail that I went into on the website for them ended up being. Uh, something that was useful to lots of people. And so I was 
you know, pretty amazed, honestly, to find that people all across the world were accessing the website. Um, it, it, the first time I kind of became aware of that, it, it blew it blew me away um, and made me take the project more seriously um, and and really kind of said, OK, well, people are using this, so I'm, I need to really kind of be aware of it. But it, it really was um, a fun side project uh, that I had going um, as I was you know, in, in the summertime, really, when I could get babysitters for my kids, grab a couple hours um, to go right. And it was a an enjoyment um, and a bit of fun. And I, I hope that that comes across in, in a lot of the writing is I had a lot of fun working on it. Um, and um, the, yeah, then it, it, the website then became the book. And we can talk more about that that change in a little bit. But yeah, it really emerged just from a desire to support my students, um, just like most uh, English teachers do, you know, they want to, they want their students to appreciate and enjoy the the literature that they're teaching. Well, I wish I had a teacher like you when I was, uh, first, when I first started reading Joyce, you know, I was just, we were just given this novel and it was extremely difficult, especially I, because I started, I read that book and when I was still learning English as a second language and it made it a bit, not a bit, way, way more challenging because you don't really know if it's real word or if he's just making it up. <laughs> yeah. Well, reading yeah. Ulysses is like, like reading a second language too. I mean, so you're kind of reading a, learning a third language as you're learning a second one. Um, I'm pretty consistently amazed by how many people around the world from, uh, you know, Sweden, from Portugal, from Italy, from uh, Iran have accessed the website and are interested in, you know, learning more about this novel where, uh, you know, the command of English that, I feel like I need to have to read the novel. I can't imagine doing so as a, as a, you know, learning English as a second language. So how, how did you go about doing that? Were you reading uh, with other resources? Were, how did you, how did you kind of discern what was Joyce's creativity with language and what was English that you could? So, yeah. Like I said, I was an undergrad student and the novel came up we had a course which was called novel that was in another course and uh there were two courses actually novel one one of them was on british novels and the other one was on american novels but anyway this was as a part of the british novels even though it was written by irish writer but anyway and we were asked to we were not asked to read the whole novel because it was huge and there were some other readings uh but when it came to this one and the teacher warned us that it's a difficult novel and the only source that i had there and that was about uh like 18 years ago. So the only source that I had at back at back then was a website, which was called uh, Monkey Notes, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Huh. Monkey Notes, yeah. That's a very... Uh, Spark Notes, sorry. Spark Notes. Spark Notes, yep. Yeah, yeah. Sure. There was another one, Monkey Notes, but it wasn't as, as, uh, it wasn't as good as a Spark Notes. Spark Notes, which only had, you know, a very, very brief summary of a chapter and the context and, 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 and a very brief discussion of illusions and symbols. So it didn't really help that much and the reason is that the story is quite simple in general because it's a story of one guy you know walking around the streets for a day but uh that's when you're reading it with as you know when you're reading it as a second with english as your second language and we were still undergrad students in english so we were reading shakespeare we were reading different sonnets we were reading greek mythology so there are lots and lots to pick up and you don't really pick up all those illusions and references in, 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 in James Joyce. So it was very difficult. Uh, a lot of us were trying to go through the whole novel, but I guess most of us just dropped it. And it wasn't a very nice experience at first because you need to have somebody, you know, you either need to have a reading group or somebody to guide you and somebody, of course, to encourage you. Because I know a lot of people who didn't really have to read the novel. They picked up the novel, but they just, they, and they knew it was difficult, but they just dropped it after, you know, going through a few chapters. And that's what we'll talk about as well, right? Some advice for <laughs> for first-time readers. But now I'm reading it, now, not because I have to, but I'm really enjoying it and I'm picking up all those nuances, uh, nuances that, that were put into this by, 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 uh, by Joyce. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned that this, uh, first it was a website and now you recently published it with John Hopkins University. So it, it's, it's a university publisher. So how how... How difficult or how challenging was it to turn the content of the website into a book that is going to be published by that was that that, that was to be published by John Hopkins University? Yeah, 
it's a it's a great question um and it 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 was difficult in part because i in in revising the content that i'd written for being published by a university press um in general which has to go through peer review and receive kind of you know thumbs up from other scholars uh like that going through that process, much less going through it with Johns Hopkins University Press, which is, you know, like a pretty, uh, you know, a pretty big deal. Uh, I, I wanted to keep my primary audience in mind, which again, was kind of my Gilman students and then evolved into, you know, began with my Gilman students and then evolved into kind of an awareness of that there were thousands of people every month across the world who were using this, who are you know, would send me notes and ask me questions. And I engaged in some correspondence. So I had a sense of who the who was using the website. Um, but also thinking about beefing up more of the scholarly uh, aspects of the writing and, and presenting uh, more of a survey of critical opinions and critical insight, you know, trying to, to bring together a lot of the the essays and book chapters that I've read um, pertaining to the Proteus episode or the Lestragonians episode, you know, trying to pull a lot more of that together um, so that it could a be more relevant in a university sort of setting um, and more useful to a university setting and be something that professors might find interesting um, and useful for their courses while also not doing so much of the scholarly work that it turned off the first time readers who were finding the website to be helpful. So it was a little bit of a, a, a tricky revision um, of kind of threading that needle of doing enough to, to make it a university press uh, publication, but, but to maintain kind of the voice and pace and accessibility that I had kind of found um, and the, I guess like the, you know, so it was a, it was a challenge of trying to strike that balance, um, which was really fun. And, and honestly, uh, I think that when I was, I kind of found a process of pre-writing and like kind of research and, and kind of, uh, preparation before writing the episode guides when I was working on the Oxen of the Sun episode, which is pretty notoriously difficult. So like Oxen, Circe, um, really the, the rest of the novel, those last uh, four or five episode guides that I wrote, I'd kind of found a different process of pre-writing and preparation that then when I revised, I in, kind of uh, practiced that process going back to Telemachus and revising each of those other episode guides up to that point, kind of rewriting, revising um, based on that process. So I think eventually I, I found what was the right balance to strike. And it was just a matter of making the whole, uh, each of the episode guides kind of consistent and coherent in terms of their depth, um, and kind of scholarly rigor. Um, so it was, but I, I loved that revision process. Um, there were a couple jokes that I took out, you know, things that were on the website that I thought were funny, but might not stand the test of time, you know, over 30 years. But I will say that when I read the book, I'll get to a certain point and be like, I think I had something that I, you know, funny here and it's gone. And so I miss those jokes, but I also recognize that, you know, Johns Hopkins University Press isn't looking for a comedy routine. Uh, and, and I'm probably not funny enough to, to be the guy to do that. So, um, yeah, so it was it was a little bit of kind of buttoning up a little bit because um, it's a more uh, yeah it's a more adult sort of project, but keeping the same kind of spirit as I had with the website. Yeah, uh, yeah, you actually mentioned a good point as we were talking. You, you uh, in the sense that you wanted to still keep a general audience engagement writing the book. Um, there are a lot of scholarly editions, a lot of edition books with, with lots and lots of annotations. We have Gifford books, New Bloomsday book, and we have your book as well. I personally have gone through most of them and I found this one very, your book, very helpful. Like I said, I first started with your website and now I got the book as well. Very useful to start reading a novel. So can you tell us uh, how your book is different from, for example, Gifford books or New Bloom's, uh, Bloomsday book? Sure. Well, and to be clear, 
Gifford's book and uh, the Blumirez new Bloomsday book are, are still great resources that I refer to often and that I used as references throughout my composition. So, you know, this is certainly, um, you know, and, and there are other great guidebooks uh, that are that are out as well. Terrence Colleen has a great guidebook. Um, Ambassador Dan Mulhall has a new book out as well. You know, so I, I feel like there are lots of people who have approached this novel and we're all, I, I, I hope, uh, and I, I assume, kind of inspired by the same interest to share this novel that we love and to try to bring Ulysses to as many people as we possibly can and, and to find its value. So um, my book is different, I think, from the Gifford book gives all these annotations and, and it gives explanations for each line, basically, because uh, there's something almost in every line of the novel that's worth exploring and unpacking and and explaining either in the context of uh, Dublin in 1904, like what was this street and and what shop is he looking at when he's noticing uh, these uh, the, this clothing on display, um, or uh, a reference to Aristotle, or a reference to Shakespeare, or um, a reference to a popular dance hall song in 1904, right? So it's all over the place. And, you know, just like, uh, so the, the Gifford gives uh, an expert um, analysis and explanation of each of those references. And there is a new uh, book of annotations by Sam Sloat that's just come out. And actually, I just got it this weekend. It finally landed uh, from Oxford University Press. And it's a big old honking book. Uh, and I'm excited to read Ulysses again this fall with that as my kind of um, uh, resource that I'll use uh, to kind of have, uh, you know, some new ideas and and to see what, what that book uh, reveals uh, as differentiated from the Gifford. And the new Bloomsday book, I think, was kind of more of a like-for-like like comparison to my project. His, uh, I think, gives a little bit more of a straight paraphrase almost or translation um, to talk go back to kind of the idea of English as a second language and Ulysses as a third language. The, the new Bloomsday book gives, you know, kind of a straight, like, here's what is happening plot summary uh, translation of what's happening in the novel. Um, and I, I guess I, I really like that. I, I found, um, and I, I, do, I do some of that certainly in my book as well. Um, I find that I guess what I wanted to do was provide a little bit more commentary um, and a little bit more of an integration or incorporation of other scholarly voices and other scholarly opinions into that paraphrase and summary. Um, so my book provides a little bit more, uh, I guess, kind of hooks for readers to maybe latch on to as they're reading and say, oh, that makes sense to me. Or, okay, I understand what that scholar is saying, but I disagree with it for X, Y, and Z reasons. Um, and, and to kind of give people a little bit more of a critical um, idea of, of how to read the book, because that's such a big part of what has become the experience of Ulysses for so many readers is it's not just the text itself, which is endlessly interesting, but it's the way that at this point, a hundred years of scholarship have approached that text. And that, that was something that I wanted to try to, to expand upon and, and provide a little bit, um, in a different way. Um, so in the book at the end of each episode guide, I provide a, a list of, essays or book chapters um, for further reading that specifically engage ideas from that episode um, where people who are interested in, in some of those ideas and approaching, you know, from a post-colonial or from a, a queer studies or from a, um, you know, whatever sort of scholarly, uh, scholarly um, critical uh, angle they want to take that, you know, that they can kind of pursue that. And I've tried to provide those resources to my readers. Um, and I, I guess, you know, I, I, I found a little bit of a different pace, I think, than maybe, uh, the Blumirez, uh, or, uh, the new Bloomsday book had, um, of, of getting through and, and a depth and, 
um, I, I tried to strike a consistent pace as well that, um, you know, I, I, again, I love the new Bloomsday book, but there are some moments that I feel like he goes really deep into, but then there are others where I feel like I, I would like to have a little bit more orientation. So I tried to be a little bit more consistent and not duck some of those sections where I, that are really difficult. Um, and, it, and I, again, I would go to the new Bloomsday book as a reference saying like, well, this is tricky. What's going on here? And there's nothing in the new Bloomsday book. Well, he thought it was tricky too. Well, then I need to make sure that I, I really read this again and again and again until I have something to, to offer to my readers about that. Yeah. Let us talk a, a little bit about the book itself, Ulysses. Uh, yep. when, what was your first reading experience like? And when was it? And I'm sure you have read it many, many times, right? To be able to write such a great book and, <laughs> and create that yeah. website. Um, so yeah, I've probably read it probably pushing 20 times at this point. Um, you know, just over and over and over again. Um, uh, you know, it makes me feel a little bit like, you know, maybe, maybe expand your, your, uh, interests, but I read other novels and I love other, other works of literature. Um, but nothing, uh, nothing else that I've encountered or very few other texts have, have been as rewarding as Ulysses. So I kind of find myself going back to it. Um, uh, on a number of levels. Uh, you know, I, I don't, it's so funny. It's so difficult. It's so, uh, endlessly, uh, providing of that, uh, thrill of discovery. Every time I open the book, I, I encounter something where I'm like, Oh, huh. I never quite noticed that little line there. Or, or who is that? What's that voice? Where's that coming from? That seems different. What's that reference? There's always something, that, that I'm discovering anew. And that's really exciting. I think for any reader, um, it can be daunting, of course, right? The first time reader is overwhelmed maybe by how much there is to discover. Um, but the 20th time reader is enriched by that and, and stimulated by that because there aren't very many other works of literature or works of art that continue to reward the reader or the, the, the person who's experiencing the art, you know, by, by providing something new. Um, but Ulysses certainly does that. So my first time reading it, uh, I was a, uh, it was the fall of my senior year of college. Uh, I was at Washington and Lee university in the mountains of Virginia. Um, and my honors thesis was, uh, about the literary history of Shakespeare and company bookstore, uh, which was a, a project that had emerged from my time living and working at Shakespeare and company in the summer of 2003. Uh, and I had done some research in the archives and, you know, certainly at Shakespeare and company, Joyce is part of the, the story is part of the, the kind of spirit of that place. And, um, uh, it's it, the Sylvia beach Shakespeare and company, uh, publication of the first edition Ulysses is certainly a part of, the lore and legend of that bookshop. So, um, when I came home from Paris, I started writing, um, about kind of the, the three, uh, different generations of writers who had been a part of Shakespeare and company. So the lost generation, the beat generation and the new generation, which was how, uh, Sylvia Whitman, who now is the, uh, owner and, uh, you know, uh, but uh, she runs the the sh the shop of of books uh, Shakespeare and Company. She's the bookseller. Um, she organized a literary festival when I was there about Lost Beat and New, and that was you know basically how I organized my honors thesis. Um, and so I as part of that, obviously, if you're going to write about the publication of Ulysses, you probably should read Ulysses. So I was this was kind of an uh, an. I had a thesis advisor who I was meeting on Sunday evenings, like every two weeks. And he would say, okay, read these three episodes of Ulysses or read these four episodes or read these two episodes, whatever he would kind of assign me over the course of that semester. And I was kind of reading on my own. I wasn't going to a class. I wasn't hearing lectures. Uh, I was reading on my own with the Gifford, with the uh, new Bloomsday book, similar to lots of readers. Um, and, uh, then would meet with him and talk with him for about an hour about, about what I, you know, kind of uh, what questions I had and where I was confused and what I'd enjoyed and what I'd picked up on. 
Um, so I guess my, my first time reading the novel was a little bit unique in that it was outside of a formal classroom setting. Um, but it did allow me, I think in some ways to, from the very beginning, have an experience with the novel that was my own and that, that, you know, I was finding enjoyment and I, I loved it from the, from the get go. I loved it. I loved the, the reading and, and felt so, um, amazed uh, by how vivid the descriptions are and how, you know, clearly defined these characters are and how much they felt like real people to me. Um, and the, the, I, what I felt was the accuracy of the inner monologue technique and how that brought awareness to my own thinking. And, and as I'd be walking around campus or walking around town, you know, so the, that experience, um, of the novel, it, 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 really it i was hook line and sinker i was sold right from the beginning and uh was but was doing a lot of the reading on my own um yeah late at night at waffle house uh in lexington virginia and and had a great time with it you know so it was it, it, from the from the very beginning it was a project that i was finding a lot of, of fun in and uh, you know uh, appreciating its its difficulty and and but also just having a good time reading this great novel and that's yeah yeah it was it was a great first time reading experience and i don't think back then there were so many guides to to help you read the novel so it was pretty much you discovering the joy of uncoding all those puzzles and enigmas that joy's put into the novel yeah yeah some so or, or being aware of like okay i don't understand what this is keep going you know like the, like the, and um you know i look at that first copy that i read and I was underlining a lot um, and I was writing some notes here and there, but for the most part, like I, 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 I didn't get probably more than 5% of what was going on in the book, but getting 5% of what's going on in Ulysses is pretty good. You know, I think that that's, um, and I kept going, you know, I think that that's maybe um, in terms of like advice to first time readers, I would say, just keep going. Like there's going to be stuff you don't get. Okay. Yeah. Just, but keep reading because that's, that's life too. There's a lot of stuff that if you're really genuinely curious, as you go through a day, you're going to find a lot of stuff that you don't get. So, but you got to keep going, um, you know, and maybe circle back and try to, you know, explore that curiosity later, but, uh, allow yourself to, to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and when you said that, when you read the book, you were amazed by, by the accuracy of description and about, it was about real people that reminded me of, uh, of, of Jeremy Corbyn, you know, who praised the, the British, former British labor, uh, and he, he praised a novel because it's about ordinary people. It's, uh, it's about working class people, normal people in everyday life. But it's interesting that, and I was, preparing myself for this interview, I did a little bit of research and apparently in, in, in Russia back in 1930s, I guess there was this, uh, Soviet writers and they harshly criticized this novel for being a bourgeois novel. But when you get to read the novel, it, it's, it's not, it's really about ordinary people living their lives. And through that, you know, James, you said that I put a lot of enigmas and puzzles into this novel to keep professors busy, <laughs> but it, at the end of the day, it's a novel written for the people, and uh, you don't really, yeah. You, the first time it's daunting, but as you keep going, you it's just like life. Discovery of you know, they had their moments of epiphany, discovering uh, symbols and secrets, and understanding you know what's going on in the novel. The same way that you that you go about your everyday life, yeah. Yeah, there's something really revolutionary about that. I think um, for a high modernist novel with all of its innovations in terms of style and, and like intricate webs of illusion to be centered upon normal people and, and to celebrate the life of a normal citizen and to, to really promote that role of just being a, a good productive, um, you know, a person in a society that, you know, that, that feels like a, a pretty valuable lesson to us all right now. Be, be a good citizen, find a way to contribute, um, and, and find a way to reconcile differences. Um, you know, be tolerant. That all feels, uh, central to the concepts of this novel. Um, 
and to the character of Mr. Bloom. Uh, and, and that, you know, it, it, it is, it, that has withstood, certainly that message, uh, has withstood the test of time here as we celebrate the centenary that still feels very, um, important for us all to kind of take on board the role of the citizen and to, to kind of understand that that is, that is what we all need to kind of do and, and keep our eye on that as we, you know, as much as everything else is swirling around us. Yes, but be a good citizen. And talking about the, the book itself, it's, there's no spoiler alert really, because <laughs> the story is simple. <laughs> we don't yeah. have to give any spoiler alert, but just for the uninitiated, let's talk about the book a little what is this story? One of the characters, Harold Bloom, uh, sorry, uh, Stephen Dedalus is is from Joyce's earlier novel. So tell us what this story is, and then we can talk about the structure of the novel. Ulysses, it's based on um, Homer's Odyssey, and we also one one thing that doesn't really get talked about a lot, but you do talk about it is is references to uh, Shakespeare, especially, especially Hamlet. Yeah, so can you talk about the novel itself? What is it, and talk about the structure of that? Sure. So um, the the novel is kind of loosely based on Homer's Odyssey, um, in in a you know in some very ironic ways. Uh, but Joyce described it as described the Odyssey as uh, in one letter he described it as the ground plan uh, for the novel, um, and another letter he describes it as kind of the scaffolding on the, the Odyssey as the scaffolding on which he builds his novel. Um, so in terms of its structure, it's similar to the Odyssey in that the first three episodes, we start with the Telemachus character, Stephen Dedalus, who is a son in search of a father. Uh, his own father is not dead. His mother is. Um, but his own father is is alive, but is pretty ill-equipped to providing the sort of fatherly guidance that Stephen Dedalus needs. So he is kind of rudderless and... Uh, struggling in, in, in um, and in need of some sort of direction. So that's, you know, we get introduced to the Telemachus Stephen character. And then just like the Odyssey kind of restarts in book five um, with the character of Odysseus, we restart in Ulysses in episode four with the character of Mr. Bloom, who is kind of a, well, he's a, uh, a father in search of a son. His own son died uh, just at 11 days old um, about 10 years ago. So he is still in lots of ways processing that loss um, and the implications of that loss. So just like Odysseus is trying to get home and trying to, to get home to his, his wife and son, Mr. Bloom is, is processing not having a son and is trying to uh, come home at the end of this day to his wife in an, in a new way, because what will happen over the course of this day is that his wife, um, and here's where the, the kind of parallels to the Odyssey are ironic. Just, you know, Penelope is, is known for her faithfulness and her um, patience and waiting for Odysseus to come home and rebuffing the suitors um, with her cleverness and guile and steadfast faithfulness to, to her husband, <laughs> Mrs. Bloom, Molly Bloom is going to have an affair this afternoon with her, uh, concert tour. She's a, a, a prominent soprano in the Dublin kind of music scene. She's going to have an affair this afternoon with Blazes Boylan, who's managing her upcoming concert tour to Belfast, uh, and Liverpool. So, Mr. You know, Mr. And Mr. Bloom knows about this. He knows that this is going to happen and is, uh, you know, processing what that means for his marriage and, and what he may have done to to um, to allow for for that opening and, and how he has uh, needs to change as a husband. So it, it it's built on all of that. But essentially, the story is that this guy, Mr. Bloom, gets up, runs a couple morning errands goes to a funeral um, and does a little bit of business. He's a, works as an advertising agent um, in 1904, which I also, I, you know, I find that those sorts of things are amazing that this novel, you know, that Joyce makes his protagonist uh, 
an ad agent. I mean, that's a nascent, very early uh, in in the history of of advertising. And of course, that's still so relevant to all of us. We're bombarded with ads all day on our computers, on our phones, on TV, on the radio, everywhere. Um, as driving, you know, driving or walking around town, seeing billboards. Um, so Mr. Bloom is, you know, Joyce understood that that was, you know, that there were legs in this thing advertising, that, that was going to be an important part of the 20th and 21st century. Um, the, which I, again, like his prescience in terms of how a market economy was going to, to develop over the, over time is, is pretty amazing. But, um, so he's an ad agent. He does some of that work. Uh, he grabs an early supper, um, he gets into an, an argue, a political argument, basically, uh, with an Irish nationalist um, that that almost gets violent, um, uh, but but Bloom escapes, um, and you know that's the Cyclops. Uh, Odysseus's battle with uh, the Cyclops, or uh, clever escape of the Cyclops, um, and then uh, M- Mr. Bloom eventually ends up at a maternity hospital to check on a friend who's been in the throes of a difficult labor where he encounters Stephen Dedalus, who is this young man who's, you know, lost in lots of ways and is drunk in this hospital, hanging out with these other medical students. And Mr. Bloom realizes like this guy needs somebody to look after him. I don't think he's okay. Um, and decides to kind of make sure that this kid, you know, makes it home. Okay. Um, takes care of them. And that is kind of this, you know, kind of coming together of the Telemachus and Odysseus figure. And, um, they, and then the, the end of the novel is basically their, uh, I guess kind of two or three hours that they spend together, um, that night. So it's, it's one day and it's pretty normal. There's not a whole, you know, there are big events that happen, but it's a pretty, you know, there are, there are no monsters. Well, I guess you could argue that there are, but you know, there are no, um, whirlpools sucking people down into, under the ocean. It's, it's a pretty, um, it's a pretty standard normal day in a city. Um, so yeah, the, the, the novel is kind of, uh, the telling of a normal person's day on the scaffolding of an epic, a time epic like the Odyssey, which again, kind of speaks to, how valuable we should see each of our days and how important it is for us to pay attention and uh, recognize the significance of, of everything that we do and every person that we interact with and, um, and every challenge that we face and, and hopefully overcome or every challenge that we don't overcome. That, that all feels like uh, what Joyce was trying to bring our attention to. Mm-hmm. Uh- and, and this is a modernist novel, and there are lots of experimentations with language, lots of portmanteau words. Uh, and I guess one of the well, one of the characteristic chapters is chapter seven, uh, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Aeolus. I I think in a part like Jenjus was also trying to play with the idea of form and the idea of novel in a way. So can you comment on the modernist elements of of the novel and Joyce's experimentation with language? Absolutely. Yeah. From, from the beginning. So the Aeolus episode is, is one of those first episodes that my students, you know, kind of scratch their head and say, why are there newspaper headlines in a novel? Um, which is a great question. And why is there a 150 page surrealist play in a novel? And why is there a catechism in a novel? Like all of those, um, different forms being incorporated into, the novel was revolutionary and and was certainly a modernist idea of making exploding a form and expanding uh, a, an idea of what a thing could be. Um, and T.S. Eliot from the very beginning understood that what Joyce was up to with that and said, you know, if if this is if this is not a novel, it's because it's a form that will no longer serve, you know, that, that Joyce has kind of expanded that. And I'm not sure that that's exactly right because I'm not sure that people, other novelists have maybe tried, but not pushed beyond the boundaries that Joyce set for the novel as a form. Um, but it's certainly Aeolus with those newspaper headlines, um, kind of framing the different sections of the, the prose narrative. Uh, it, it is, 
uh, revolutionary and it does beg uh, all sorts of questions and, and prompt all sorts of questions about well, why can't newspaper headlines be in a novel? Why, in what ways do we want to set those boundaries? And then what is a newspaper and and why is that reading experience different or, um, uh, you know, they're all, you know, if telling a story and if bringing, using illusion and uh, providing references, like what, well, where do we draw those lines? And, and Joyce was kind of work, working within kind of the nooks and crannies of what we understood about a novel in a way that was, I think, generative in a lot of ways. You know, I think a lot of it opened doors to other writers and other um, creatives, you know, where maybe you see some of that in TV or in cinema, um, you know, that, that, you know, film can maybe play with genre in, in a way that, that novel, uh, that novels can and, 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 but maybe haven't to the same degree um, since Joyce. But um, yeah, it was certainly, a, you know, kind of this, if, if Pound called for modernists to make it new, certainly Joyce's Ulysses made the idea of the novel uh, anew for all kinds of writers and artists and readers. And uh, I was also quite surprised. I knew that the book had been banned, but I was quite surprised to understand that uh, United States was the first country that sort of first uh, English-speaking country that lifted the ban. And then in Ireland, it wasn't formally banned, but I guess it was in until 1960s that the novel was published. So uh, tell us a, a little about the history of the book itself. Why was it banned? You know, there are obscenities in the book, but it, it's quite uh, surprising that the book was banned in 1920s. And, and also in Ireland, how come it took, uh, it took like uh, 40 years, you know, for the novel to be published, to be, publicly released in Ireland. Yeah. So there's uh so I'll, I'll start with the the initial banning. So in 1920 um for in the late 19 teens Ulysses was being published serially, so kind of episode by episode, you know, chapter by chapter in a an avant-garde literary magazine called The Little Review uh that was run by two women, uh Margaret Anderson and Jane Heap. Um and they they, so they were publishing this, you know, bit by bit. They, once they got to the Nausicaa episode, which uh, you know has a, a, a stylized, um, but still inappropriate, uh, you know, depiction of inappropriate behavior um, by Mister Bloom uh, on the beach. Uh, he pleasures himself while looking at a young girl and kind of having a uh, a little bit of a silent connection with her. It, it, you know, kind of at twilight. Um, it, 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 you know, obviously that uh, drew attention uh, to this novel and the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice flagged it, pulled it in, said, you, you know, you can't uh, publish obscenity and you can't send it through the post. You know, you can't send it through the, the post office. So uh, it ended up uh, being put up uh, on trial. Um, and in February of 1920, Ulysses was deemed obscene and, and nobody else could touch it from, from that point on. Um, or nobody was willing to touch it, it from that point on, uh, in the English speaking world, which is why it, the novel was eventually published in France by Sylvia Beach at Shakespeare and company bookstore. Um, because a French printer was not, uh, you know, uh, falling victim or, or making themselves vulnerable to American or, or English law. Uh, in the same way that a, an English printer or a, a printer in New York would have, you know, been held liable uh, for printing obscenity, um, so the book is banned. But they, you know, the the first edition of a thousand copies uh, gets sold from Shakespeare and Company. Um, there's another edition from the Egoist Press that does come out. Um, it's printed in, in, in and gets kind of there. Are, I think two thousand copies in that edition, but Shakespeare and company, I think did 11 printings, different editions, um, that, that came out in the, in the twenties. Um, and then eventually, uh, random house decides that they're going to try to challenge this, uh, ban on the book. And they smuggle in, I think cleverly, they smuggle in a copy of Ulysses 
and had taped inside of it all of these critical opinions from literary critics, from scholars that were celebrating what an achievement this novel was and placing it in a uh, in the context of literary understanding and exploration and creativity and innovation. Um, and so the, the book gets seized at the, at the border or in the port of New York and, but it had all that stuff in it. So all of those, uh, essays and articles were taken in as evidence. So the judge had to consider all of that as he was studying the novel to issue his ruling. And the judge was a man named John Woolsey, um, and then in December of 1933, he issues his ruling that essentially um, you have to view this novel as a whole um, and that to take the Nausicaa episode on its own or that moment of the Nausicaa episode on its own would be deemed obscene. But when you understand a character and Joyce's uh, intention of trying to represent a, a fully formed human being as he has done with like this extreme realism. Um, if that human being happens to be, uh, you know, uh, have sexualized thoughts and, and, uh, you know, some sexual uh, kind of proclivities, then that that's what Joyce was trying to represent was this character, you know, having weaknesses, not, uh, trying to titillate or trying to arouse or, you know, it's not pornographic in nature. So he understood that and kind of saw those moments of sexual content as tiles in a larger mosaic of the human experience and uh, released the novel from its ban. Um, and so it, it became, uh, it was then able to be published in the United States and England. And as you say, in Ireland, it wasn't ever formally banned, but people were not interested in reading it um, for a long, long time. There's a great book that that just came out this year um, called Consuming Joyce by John McCourt. I don't know if you've encountered that one yet, um, but it, it tells the story of the reception of Ulysses in Ireland and talks about how people regarded, you know, in the 20s and 30s, uh, up through really the, the sixties. Um, and I'm sure that there are still people like this today, you know, in an Irish, a, a, a predominantly Irish Catholic country, the blasphemous nature of this novel, um, you know, they saw Joyce as something of an antichrist and, you know, wanted nothing to do with them. So nobody was interested in, in, uh, reading, uh, the filth that, that Joyce had written, uh, they weren't, they weren't going to go there. So, uh, it wasn't, uh, really until the eighties as McCourt kind of points out that, that, uh, Ireland started to embrace Joyce as, uh, a representative, um, voice in their literary history. Um, but it's a, it's a complicated, uh, relationship between Joyce and Ireland. Uh, you know, Joyce was in exile. He lived almost, you know, probably uh, two thirds of his life uh, away from from Ireland, and uh, but yeah, it was the book was banned, and then it wasn't. But but still, people for you know the next thirty forty years weren't interested in reading it in Ireland. It's it's a fascinating story how the novel was reached. The story of the reception of the novel in Ireland, and nowadays when whenever we speak of Dublin, James Joyce is there. He's one of the iconic figures. Who, in a way, in a way, it's it's kind of ironic. It's I tend to think of it this way, that it's James Joyce who has given this history and legacy to Ireland and Dublin. The moment you hear the word Dublin or Ireland, James Joyce. And we have the Bloomsday Festival, which uh, this year you told me earlier that you attended. So I guess that's a perfect segue into my next question, which is the significance of setting of the novel, which is Dublin, and maps and cartography. I read somewhere, it was some time ago, I was reading uh, uh, about the theory of space and fictions, I read that lots of visitors who go to London, those who love Sherlock Holmes, they go and try to find 221B Baker Street, which doesn't really exist, but people go to find it. And I also read that even similar, some visitors who go to Dublin, they try to trace back the places that uh, the, the places that Harold Bloom walked on that day, which is uh, June 16th. So uh, can you imagine the novel written being written in a different city or a different country. What is the significance of setting 
Dublin and also maps because in your website and also in your books, you have maps of Dublin. So what is the significance of setting in place? And then maybe after that, you can also talk about Bloomsday Festival, uh, which you recently attended. Yeah, sure. Um, so Joyce said um, that in the particular is found the universal. And I think that the setting of the novel in Dublin, I mean, it is so particular and such exacting detail of this street. What's what shops are on this street? And he was using references, the Tom's directory uh, from 1904 to try to to be as accurate as possible in representing the city. I mean, he also um, kind of uh, preposterously suggested that if Dublin were to be destroyed by some catastrophe, that it could be rebuilt brick by brick from his novel. And and that's an overstatement, obviously. Um, but he was a salesman and he knew that there was some truth to that, that, there, that he had represented this city of Dublin really, really accurately and very carefully uh, in terms of uh, you know, not just space, uh, and not just like, uh, what, you know, what is on this street, but how long it would take a character to walk from this place to this place and how many different thoughts they might have, you know, on that, in that amount of time. So there's like a real pacing, uh, both in, you know, uh, in terms of thought and in terms of walking that, that, you know, you can study and that there have been, pretty fascinating studies of like words per minute or words per second that a character might think in their inner monologue and what feels natural and, and so forth. So, um, so I, I think that that idea of like in the particular is the universal that you can imagine this novel being set in San Francisco or in Melbourne, Australia, or in Paris. Uh, if you just were to kind of, transform it into the very particular parts of that city. You know, the, the particularity of Dublin, it, it creates this, um, I guess kind of like a, an understanding or an impression of we are in a real place. We are in a city. And I think that that was also part of what, what made this work so well and what makes the novel continue to work so well a hundred years on is that Dublin had a modern mass transit system had um all kinds of uh you know kind of modern you know telegraph you know uh, mass media a lot you know multiple news cycles in a day you know morning and and evening newspapers for an increasingly literate populace it was really on the cusp of the world that feels so familiar to us you know I, we've already talked about advertising agents um but that all you know each of those different elements makes this city experience feel very relevant today, you know? Um, so I think that he was so painstaking in representing that city in a way that it made, certainly it immortalizes Dublin and makes Dublin itself, um, you know, uh, a, a tourist attraction for people who do want to go retrace the steps of Mr. Bloom. Um, but it also uh, kind of creates a model that you can, uh, you know, appreciate that that's what, uh, walking through the streets of, of Baltimore, you know, you could do the same sort of thing thinking about, okay, I'm walking by Mick O'Shea's pub and now here is a, you know, a salad shop. And, you know, let me, you can, you can understand how it's a universal experience of, of walking through a city street in the way that Mr. Bloom does in, in Ulysses. And let us talk about the audio version of the book. <laughs> There are a lot of audiobooks, but one one of them that they, that I guess is the most famous one is the radio production RTE Radio, which was produced in 1982 or three, if I'm not mistaken. I myself, when I, whenever I read one chapter, I give myself a bit of rest, and in the meantime, before starting the second one, I listen to the audio to the to to uh, to the to the audio version, which is a dramatized production. There are different characters speaking for the other character, which has helped me a lot because sometimes when I read the novel. I kind of lose tra uh, lose track of who's speaking, but the radio production helps me. So let's let me phrase this question this way: as an advice, as a piece of advice to a first-time reader. You earlier, well, one of the most important pieces of advice that they gave was to not to stop reading a novel. It's daunting; just keep reading. Uh, I, I, list, I I was talking to a friend of mine who read the novel, and he told me that he started with the 
audio version. You just listen to this before reading the novel. So uh, what is your advice there? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think there are a lot of people who use that RTE uh, recording and, and appreciate um, and I think it's benefit, as you kind of point out, is it it has a cast of different uh, readers who are dramatizing and and bringing those different voices uh, to life and and in a way that helps um, you to understand, okay, that's the narrator's voice. That echo effect signals that now we're in inner monologue um, or you know there, there are you know kind of technical, uh, devices that they used in putting that audio recording together and that performance. It's, just, it's a performance of the novel in a way that an audio book obviously is too, but not in a, a cast like that. Um, that. There's some real benefit to, to that kind of consistency of interpretive performance that they give. Um, but I also find... You know, different audiobooks are great. Um, uh, Shakespeare and Company Bookstore this year did a series. They had over 100 readers read different sections of Ulysses. Um, and so you get a lot of different voices. And, and that was really fun. Um, and some of those readings, I'm thinking of uh, like Stephen Fry's reading of Oxen of the Sun and Tara Mulholland's uh, reading of Oxen of the Sun were really revealing to me uh, of that this is that oxen is really funny and it, as difficult as it is, you know, it, it, because it parodies 32 pro styles and is, you know, very dense and kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, the way that it doesn't ever like settle on telling the story in a, in a consistent style it, The it revealed to me that those performances revealed to me how funny it was and that Joyce is in on that joke. Um, and that he, he, he was having fun with it too. Um, so certainly the RTE, there are a lot of first time readers who find, um, some grounding in that performance and I, I highly recommend it. Yeah. And when you were reading the novel and researching it, which chapter was the most challenging and at the same time stimulating one to you? Well, when I, 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 the most challenging one was, was probably oxen as I just mm. kind of referenced, um, because it is, it, it shifts so quickly that it's dizzying and you never really kind of get your feet under you. And you're like trying to, you understand what he's doing with this progression of styles as it's seeking to replicate embryonic development. And there's just so many different layers of discourse that, that you have to kind of wade through. Um, but, uh, so that, that one kind of, although I'm finding that, that episode for the past year or two has been maybe my favorite, uh, which is a weird thing to admit. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's not everyone's favorite. It's kind of, you know, it's, but it's emerged as that it's an acquired taste, I guess. Um, so oxen is, is that way I think to teach Nausicaa is the most difficult episode because my students are, are so, uh, you know, high school kids, 18 year olds, so quick to condemn and, and see things in, in, you know, black and white, uh, like what Mr. Bloom does on the beach is wrong and reprehensible. And like, yes, it is. Of course, let's also appreciate what has, what is transpiring between him and Gertie McDowell. It's, and it's, it's difficult for me as a teacher of high school students to try to get them to, to see some gray area in something that, that really is morally, uh, kind of atrocious, uh, what he does there. But, um, that's a tricky episode to teach. Um, and, uh, that, that always is, is a, a class period where I, I really need to be on my toes. And, and that, that episode, uh, uh, reverberates, you know, th through the rest of their reading, they, they struggle to get over that. Um, in a way that adults I've taught an adult class, they kind of shrug like, okay, yeah, it's kind of gross, but he's kind of a quirky guy. He's lonesome. You know, they, uh, the adults in my class, I was prepared for it to be more like with my, with my high school students. And they were like, yeah, I get it. So it, it, uh, it, it, you know, it kind of caught, I was, uh, pleasantly surprised that that was an easier class period with the adults than I, than I thought, uh, it might be. Yeah. 
Um, earlier, I mentioned that uh, Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of uh, Labour Party, the former leader of Labour Party, praised the book, you know, lauded the book, and said that everybody should read this book. Uh, and we know that James Joyce was also involved in, in his writings. He, he addressed the political issues of the time. So, what are, what is the political significance, or what are some political issues that he deals with in this novel? So, I mean, on, on its face, the, the novel is very political. Um, you know, you have to have an appreciation for Ireland as, a, you know, a colony of, of Great Britain at the time that Joyce is writing. And uh, certainly in the 1904 Dublin that he's depicting and, and the you know, debates over Irish nationalism and, and how uh, like whether violence is the right answer. Um, you know, certainly, uh, there, there's a, a lot of political discourse over the course of that novel. Um, it's, it, the whole novel is just kind of drenched with that. Um, but I find, you know, most notably and, and maybe most timely at its core, I feel like Ulysses espouses inclusiveness. Um, that feels like, a a you know, a, a principle political issue of our time, certainly here in the United States. These are, you know, parts of, of what we're wrestling with a lot and across the world. Because Mr. Bloom is a Jewish man in Dublin at the turn of the century. You know, he endures and confronts an atmosphere of anti-Semitism throughout the course of the single day we spend with him. Uh, through Joyce's innovative technique of inner monologue, we have access to Mr. Bloom's thoughts and feelings in those moments where he's suffering, uh, you know, slights and prejudice. Uh, and the reader's, you know, intimate understanding of this character instills, I think, a, a call to empathy, um, and you know, essentially, like having experienced the world through the eyes of Mister Bloom and having gained an appreciation for the depth of humanity that we all share. How can we not be careful of the real people we encounter in our daily lives? That feels like something that this novel is is prompting us to do. Um, and the writing style of the novel further emphasizes that spirit of inclusivity in the way that Joyce absorbs so many different types of writing into Ulysses. You know, given that we have a chapter written in the style of a syrupy, sweet Victorian romance novel sitting alongside a chapter written in the form of a surrealist play. And we have chapters that contain literally dozens of different literary styles, from legal contracts to sports journalism, from medieval legend to Dickensian narrative, that all demonstrate, I think, a, democ a democratic ideal that differences can coexist together and indeed can inform and strengthen the other. That feels like part of the, the political message of this novel to me is our, our differences make us more interesting. Um, and that that's kind of put together uh, through the the way that the the novel tells this story. Uh, Patrick, it's been a fascinating conversation. But before we end the conversation, I'd like to ask you to read uh, your favorite section of the novel. Understand how difficult it must be for you to choose. <laughs> but yeah, maybe that's the best way to end this podcast. <laughs> Sure. Uh, and, and like favorite uh, section, I, whenever I'm asked to do something like this, I, I usually just open the book at random and see where it falls. And it, uh, when I did this last night uh, in preparation, since you'd kind of tipped me off that you might ask me to do this, it opened right at the, the end of the Cyclops episode, which is, um, you know, kind of a, a cool moment, climactic sort of moment. Uh, so this is uh, the nameless one is our narrator. And this is the very end as the the citizen who is kind of our Cyclops correspondence character, an Irish nationalist uh, who's gotten into kind of an altercation with Mr. Bloom um, over the nature of, of nationalism. Uh, so uh, there's been a whole kerfuffle over uh, basically the idea that these guys in a pub think that Mr. Bloom has just made a bunch of money uh, betting on a, a dark horse in a, in a, in the gold cup, uh, horse race, uh, which he hasn't. Um, but they, they think that he's made a bunch of money and, and he's not sh standing around, but anyway, he's on his way out. Um, and, it, uh, the nameless one says, you never saw the like of it in all your born puff gob. If he got that lottery ticket on the side of his pole, he'd remember the gold cup. He would. So, but the gob, the citizen would have been lagged for assault and battery and Joe for aiding and abetting the Jarvie saved his life by furious driving as sure as God made Moses. What? Oh, Jesus, he did. 
and he let a volley of oaths after him. Did I kill him, says he, or what? And he shouting to the bloody dog, after him, Gary, after him, boy. And the last we saw was the bloody car rounding the corner and the old sheep's face on it gesticulating and the bloody mongrel after it with his lugs back for all he was bloody well worth to tear him limb from limb. Hundred to five. Jesus, he took the value out of it, out of him, I promise you. When lo, and then it kind of shifts into this strange, like biblical voice. When lo, there came about them all a great brightness and they beheld the chariot wherein he stood ascend to heaven. And they beheld him, and him is Mr. Bloom here, in the chariot, clothed upon in the glory of the brightness, having raiment as of the sun, fair as the moon, and terrible, that for all they durst not look upon him. And there came a voice out of heaven, calling, Elijah, Elijah, and he answering with a main cry, Abba, Adonai. And they beheld him, even him, born Ben Bloom Elijah, amid clouds of angels ascend to the glory of the brightness at an angle of 45 degrees over Donahue's and Little Green Street like a shot off a shovel. And that ends uh, the Cyclops and ends our conversation. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you very much for this conversation. And I do encourage our listeners, those who have always loved James Boyce, but were afraid to pick up the book to Pick up the book, Ulysses, and also go to your website or get the book, The Guide to James Joyce's Ulysses, published by John Hopkins University. Thank you very much, Patrick. Thank you so much. It's been a fun, fun conversation.